I really meant to say before I began that prayer that today is the day in many Protestant churches where we celebrate the Reformation. 505 years ago, about this time, Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Castle to explain his particular objections to the way in which the church was viewing the gospel and therefore itself in their world at that time. Now, we're a long time away from 1517, right? That's many generations. And yet the truth that Martin Luther sought to preserve, to recover really, is a truth that mattered not only for him, it also matters for us. And this morning, I want to look at a passage that might not ordinarily be connected to the Reformation. Maybe it's a Sola Scriptura passage, or maybe it's a Christ alone passage, or the glory of God alone. But we're not going to look at one of those passages. We're going to turn to the end of Matthew chapter 11, to one of the passages that does play prominently in the history of the Reformation, and recovers a truth that I think is not only helpful, but really essential our lives as Christians in this world. So from Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 25, I'd like to read verses 25 through 30. May the Lord bless this reading of his word. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. These are the words of God. May he bless them in the preaching as in the hearing. This morning I begin by asking you to travel with me on a story of imagination. And it takes us back many, many years to the time in which there were kings and queens into a world, if you were a child, you may love to read about. Imagine a king, a powerful king, a king who reigned over his kingdom with righteousness and justice, and everyone loved this king. He was a marvelous king. Wherever he went, people cheered for him. He was that kind of king. But this king was king alone. He did not have a queen. You know, there are fairy tales that are based on this particular scenario. And then there are countries that send their daughters over to meet this king, hoping for some grand union to take place, for kingdoms to be consolidated and power to be built. Only that's not this story. One day, this king of this kingdom was riding around in his kingdom in his carriage, and he looked out the window of his carriage, and he saw, standing on the street corner... Not a woman who was finely dressed in beautiful apparel. No, he saw a woman who was very quickly in his eyes identified accurately as a prostitute. And he invites this woman into his carriage. And not just invites her into the carriage, but he comes to know her. And eventually over the passage of time, he comes to love her. 
And of all the crazy things and all these fairy tales from long, long ago, this king decides to marry this prostitute, and the prostitute becomes a queen. In the moment in which the ceremony takes place, they take vows to each other, and everyone hears the vows from the queen to the king and the king to the queen. In that moment, the king says to his queen, the woman who was the prostitute, you now possess as I possess my kingdom, my power, my glory. It all belongs to you. And I take upon myself all that you bring with you, your history of shame and suffering and abuse. My glory belongs to you, and I take from you all the suffering that you've endured. It's an interesting story, isn't it? A story of transformation. Really a story of freedom, if you think about it. Only what I want to tell you about this story this morning is that the prostitute is you. That is, according to Martin Luther, who tells this story in his book called The Christian's Freedom, that was published very soon after he nailed those theses to the door in Wittenberg in 1517. And the reason he tells this story in this little book called The Christian's Freedom is because he wanted to impress upon every single Christian the amazing nature of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It is to more than to affirm basic and wonderful Christian truths. It's more to say that we need the Scripture alone, or we need Christ alone, or the glory of God alone. All great truths from the Reformation. No, Martin Luther wanted to say, in addition to all those truths, or maybe even more fundamental than all those truths, is this. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings freedom. And in this 505th anniversary of the Reformation of the Protestant Church, I want you to hear that truth very clearly. The gospel brings freedom. And I want you to hear specifically this idea from Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. That with Jesus you can turn from the fear that you sense. And with Jesus you can turn to the freedom that you seek. I want to explain that this morning from this passage, and there are really three ideas that I want to give to you, and the first is this, if you're taking notes, the first thing you need to hear about with Jesus, you can turn from your fear, with Jesus you can turn to the freedom that you seek, is that Paul lays down, not Paul, Matthew, (laughs) I've been preaching too much from Paul, Matthew lays down in the telling of the story the foundation for why that truth is so important. Let me give you that foundation in verses 25 through 27. The foundation for this truth, with Jesus you can turn from the fear you sense to the freedom you seek. If you look at the passage in verse 25, you'll notice it begins like this. It says, at that time, Jesus declared, literally it says replied, The reason it's translated as declared in the ESV is because if it was translated replied, you would ask yourself the question, replied to whom? And you'll notice in the previous verses, if you look through, there's no one that Jesus is replying to. A question has not been asked. But what happens in verse 25 is that Jesus is replying or responding not to a question who has been, that has been asked, not to a person. He is responding to a situation. 
And the situation he's responding to is the first part of this chapter, and I want to explain that to you. If you have your Bibles open, you'll notice the first 15 verses of this chapter is all about the proof that John the Baptist seeks that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. You can put yourself in John the Baptist's shoes. Somebody comes along and says, I'm the Messiah. You'd want to ask the question, really? How can I know that to be true? And Jesus says, here you go, tell John that the Old Testament prophets are being fulfilled. They predicted the Messiah would open the eyes of the blind, the lame would walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the good news preached to them. Go to John the Baptist and say, this is being fulfilled, so that John the Baptist hears. Can you imagine what the Old Testament prophets would have done when they heard that Jesus was fulfilling these claims. The king has come. The kingdom has arrived. Praise the Lord. But what does verse 16 say? The response of the generation who actually watched these things happen is they did not receive this as good news. In fact, in Jesus' summary, they criticized John the Baptist instead of repenting at his message. And when Jesus came, they rejected him as the Messiah because he brought good news to tax collectors and sinners. They said, if you're the Messiah, you wouldn't hang around with those kinds of people. You would want to to be with the powerful, those who proclaim themselves to be morally good. Instead, you're seeking out the sinners. What kind of Messiah can you be? And so serious is Jesus' condemnation of that generation, the way they received him, the way they interpreted his good news and his engagement, seeking to proclaim that gospel, the kingdom has arrived. So serious is Jesus' condemnation of that generation. Please listen carefully to this because it is genuinely shocking. He describes thoroughly pagan cities as far more likely to believe than these people did. He says if what happened here, it happened in Tyre and Sidon, notoriously pagan cities at that point, he says they would have repented. But not you people. He even points to notorious Sodom. If you're aware of Sodom in the Old Testament book of Genesis, it was a place that was so openly promiscuous, And there was so much homosexuality as a form of that promiscuity that the entire city was smoked by God through fire from heaven. He was burned up. And Jesus says, according to Matthew, if Sodom had heard what you hear and see what you see, Sodom itself would have repented. But not you. You refuse. These people would not repent. They were stubborn. They would not listen. They would not turn. They were hard-hearted. Listen, friends, there is a special kind of rebellion that goes along with hearing, 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 and hearing again, really knowing the gospel and rejecting it. The best way I can illustrate it is imagine for those of you who appreciate metalworking, a steel that has been hardened Because it's been heat-treated, it becomes stronger and tougher, harder to bend or to work. That's what happens in a very negative way when you hear the gospel over and over. You take it in and refuse it. You reject it. And hearing the good news of Jesus and watching what he is doing and then turning away from him in rejection, even disgust, brings with it a particular kind 
of judgment. I want to be direct with you as I can be this morning. To hear the gospel over and over and reject it, according to Jesus in this passage, is worse than being the most openly and flamboyant sexual deviants. It is easier in the last day, Jesus says, for that person than it would be for the person who hears, 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 and refuses the gospel. Those are hard words, my friend, but I say them to you because they're found here. And I say to them because they ought to bring hope to those of us who struggle with sexual temptation. But really, and this is the point of Jesus, deep concern to those of us who are playing around with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, you've put yourself in a very, very serious place. It's all to make this point. And this is what we read immediately before the passage I read for you in just a, mo- uh, just a, a few moments ago. This is what Jesus is responding to when it says he replied. Jesus is responding to this situation where the very last words in verse 24 are this, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Do you fear that? Do you hear those words and your first thought was, have I put myself in such a dangerous place that I'm on the road to condemnation? Do they bring to you this deep sense of fear and hesitancy? Are you overwhelmed by your sense of guilt and your desire that you would run from the presence of God? Do you fear? The reason I make that point so strenuously was because at the time the Reformation occurred, the church specialized in fear. It was an overwhelming success in the church's eye to create a culture of such deep fear that people had nowhere to go but to the church and the things the church told them to do and then made it clear to them that inherently, no matter how many times they did what the church said, it was never quite enough, so do some more. And if you do some more and more and more and more, eventually you might do enough to make God happy. How many of us living 500 years after the Reformation continue to struggle with that as the view we have of Christianity? If you want to know how this worked out in Martin Luther's life, read his biography. There are a number of them. Or watch one of the movies. There's an older one and a more recent one that show the reality of that fear in his life. So much fear. And this has been the world's longest introduction to verse 25. Because I have to tell you, all that is really necessary for you to appreciate what Jesus says in verses 25 through 30. Jesus is replying to all of that, that fear that clings so closely to many of our hearts, that fear that can be so tempting to resort to in the church of Jesus Christ when we motivate people by that fear. 
And here's the gospel this morning that I want to proclaim to you and explain. Jesus says in verses 25 through 30, it doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to be motivated by that fear. There is something better, something richer, something freer. And that's what I want to explain to you. Look at verses 25, 26, and 27 now. With all of that in mind, Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. And then he goes on to say, you've not only revealed them to little children, but you've revealed them through me. Speaking about himself through Jesus. Jesus reveals who God is according to these verses. In fact, no one can reveal God, the Father, the one whom we ought to fear The one who has made us, the one who holds us accountable for everything that we do. The things that other people can see and the things they can't. God knows them all. Honestly, standing before a righteous God without the covering of Jesus Christ, the natural reaction is to fear. But Jesus says, I can reveal to you who God really is. Because he says in verse 27, I have the authority that comes from the Father. And the Father has given that authority to me. He has revealed who He is to me. And the point that Jesus is making, and I want to make this very clearly, Jesus is making the point, in order not to fear God, you need to know Jesus. There's no other way. You can try a thousand other ways. You can try to distract yourself in literally 10,000 other ways. And you will find, as you are discovering perhaps now, none of them are sufficient for the peace that you're seeking to find. You may look for it in your work. You may look for it in other people. You may look for it in entertainment, in distraction, in the accumulation of possessions, in the approval of other people. You may look for it over and over and over again. But if you're looking for that peace apart from the revelation that comes in Jesus Christ, there will always be that fear in the back of your mind, that niggling thought, I'm not doing enough. And God is going to hold me accountable. Jesus says the foundation of the escape from that fear is knowing God the Father through Jesus Christ. There's no other way. Jesus is at the center of what it means not to fear God. In fact, I would tell you in my estimation, the entire Reformation can be distilled to that point. It's really simple. And it is absolutely critical With Jesus, you can turn from the fear that is not only found at the beginning of this chapter, chapter 11, and the fear that was so powerful at the time the Reformation occurred, but also the fear that operates in the hearts of men and women and children. With Jesus Christ, you can turn from the fear you sense to the freedom that you seek. But you need Jesus, according to verses 25, 26, and 27. Do you hear me? Jesus makes that point clear. So the natural question at this point is, well, how can I have this Jesus then? And that's where we read verses 28 and 29. And I'm going to read them over for you because it's been a moment. It says in verse 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
There are a number of important phrases in these two verses, and I want to explain them. I want to explain them clearly but succinctly because they move us from, in order to find this freedom that I am hoping for, I need to have Jesus to how can you have this Jesus? What does this mean? Jesus has two commands in these verses. Come to me and take my yoke upon you. These are the two commands. When Jesus says in the first one of these verses, come to me, he speaks these words to those who are heavy and weary, those who are bowed down or bowed down, I guess, more accurately with weight. And Jesus says, I'll give you rest. Well, okay, ask the question with me. Go ahead. What does it mean to be weary and heavy laden? Where does that come from? If you search the Gospel of Matthew, you can pretty quickly understand what Jesus is talking about. One of the reasons we might be weary and heavy laden is context-specific. The religious leaders had told the people they needed complete obedience in order to be pleasing to God. In fact, it wasn't just complete obedience to the law of God. It was obedience to the law of God plus those things that they said would protect the law of God. Later in the gospel, Jesus condemns those leaders specifically. He says they lay heavy burdens on the people, weighing them down. There's no end to it. They told the people, God will never love you and accept you until you become a better person. Now, maybe you hear that and you say, well, that's obviously not true. That's not the gospel. Well, what is the story you tell yourself? Even though you might know intellectually that is true, how often do you default to the story, God cannot possibly love me because I still have all these things in my life? And now here I am going to tread on thin ice. How easy is it for me as a pastor to motivate you with the same kind of guilt. There's nothing wrong with guilt. Guilt can be very good. Guilt can be very good in the same way that when you touch your finger to a fire, you pull your hand back because your finger said something's wrong. Your nervous system says, oh, that hurts, pull back. Something's dysfunctional here. Guilt can do the same thing. This is not a dismissal of guilt. It is to say that guilt is good in the right place, indicating something's wrong, something needs to change, something is... Not the way it ought to be. But if guilt becomes the motivator, your children will obey you until they leave your home. And people in the church will have an appearance of godliness until they are by themselves. Or with others they feel they can be free with. And then all that layer of morality and godliness is stripped away. Because guilt can never change. Guilt is good as an indication that change is needed, but guilt can't do the change themselves itself. And that's what was happening in the religious culture at the time in which Jesus was writing. And Jesus says, but when you come to me, the opposite occurs. I'm not here to tell you, feel more guilty about who you are and what you have done. If you already feel that guilt, that's the spirit at work. But now what comes after the guilt? Jesus says, me, come to me, all those who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What does it mean when Jesus says that he will give you rest? It is the opposite of this burden. It is to go back 
to the story that Martin Luther told in his little book, The Freedom of the Christian. It is to understand that we are the prostitute and that Christ has taken upon himself the guilt and the shame, the punishment we deserve. And we have received from him the fullness of all that it means to belong to him. That he is now ours and we are his. That he protects us and keeps us. He forgives us. He loves us. He is even at work in our lives so that the difficult things are intended for good. The rest here is not a shallow, like I take a nap kind of rest. It is the deep Old Testament equivalent of shalom, that is where everything is at peace. It is for some of us where our minds go, in the middle of a life that is up and down and filled with all kinds of difficulty, and we say in our hearts, come Lord Jesus, make all of this right, take away the struggle, the strife, take away it all, come please. And Jesus says, even now I can give you that rest. I'll give it to you. Here it is. To know that you're at peace with God. That's the rest Jesus is referring to, and that's what Martin Luther wanted. And that's, my friend, what you can have. And you can have it now. Jesus goes on to say, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now, the first thought that come to your mind, comes to your mind might be the yoke of oxen. You needed two of them. Maybe you've gone to like a living histories farm. I used to do that with my children when they were younger. I lament the fact they're not young enough to do that anymore. But you'd see this ox's yoke. It's a big thing made out of wood. One ox goes here, another one goes here, and they have to pull together. That's not what Jesus is talking about. The yoke Jesus is referring to you might find in a different place in that living history farm. You would find it where someone had to go down to a well. They had to pull up the water from the well, dump it in buckets, and carry it back to wherever they went. There would be a yoke. They'd lay across their shoulders. You could put a bucket on each side. It was heavy, and it hurt some, but it made the job tolerable. That's the kind of yoke Jesus is referring to. He's not placing a heavy burden upon you. It's not the animal yoke. He's not trying to just get something from you. He's not just trying to make you productive. It's an implement intended to help. Life is difficult. There's no doubt about it. Jesus is not avoiding that reality. But he is saying the yoke that I lay upon you is a yoke in which you will work and be busy but it is a yoke that I give you so that as you do it, you have my help. He even goes so far as to say the burden is light. That's not to take away the burden. But some of you might remember the times when you worked out. Maybe you worked out very diligently and you started your bench press at 50 pounds. And after working out for six months, you could bench press 225 and then someone brings the bar over and says, here, try the 50 pounds again. You're like, no problem, watch this. Jesus is referring to the lightness of a burden that occurs as you walk with him. It's not to say there is no burden. It's only to say that the burden becomes lighter as you walk with him. 
To put it all in a nice package with a bow, when you walk with Jesus, it is not as though the difficulties are all of a sudden gone. It is to say that you're walking with a Savior who is distinctively different than those religious leaders. The religious leaders would say to you, figure it out when you don't feel guilty. Jesus says, I'm coming to you to give you whole life peace and then calling you to follow me in a way that you will bear burden but I will make it tolerable. Is there anyone here this morning who feels like you're on the edge of that burden being tolerable? You think to yourself, I am the camel and one more straw is going to break the camel's back. You know that your Savior knows exactly how much you can bear. And what He has brought into your life is not for your ill, it's not to harm you, it's not to hurt you. It's to bring you in a walk after Him that is closer to conform you to the image that He possesses. It is tended for good. Notice He says that about His own character. He says in verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. You know what Jesus is saying in those verses? He is a kind of character that's winsome to those who are looking for help. That's who our Jesus is. For all the authorities that would simply point out to you everything that you've done wrong and how much more you need to do, Jesus says, that's not me. That's not me. I have a loneliness of spirit. There's a humility in me. It's not to say he's not powerful and great. No, he said in previous verses, the Father has given me all things. I have the authority of the Father. But he doesn't come to you pounding you. He comes to you beckoning you winning you, bringing you alongside, that you would see the gentleness of your Savior. There's so many more things I'd like to say about that this morning, but there's one more thing that I must say. The foundation of this passage, the foundation of this passage is that you cannot have this peace apart from Jesus Christ. That's the first three verses of this section. That's what Jesus is emphasizing. The invitation comes in verses 28 and 29. Come, bear the yoke. But then verse 30 lays out the expectation, the foundation, the invitation, and now the expectation. And let me read that for you again. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, what's interesting about this is later on in 1 John chapter 3, The writer, I think perhaps, and I want to be careful about saying this, but it's very likely the writer may have considered Matthew chapter 11 in writing these verses at the beginning of John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3. It says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has that hope in himself purifies himself as he is pure. You know what John is reflecting on? The truth that your Savior loves you deeply. And the expectation in verse 30 is that love 
will make the yoke of the weight of your life easy and your burden is light. At the very heart of Christianity is the incarnation. Every other religion says, here are a list of things to do, meet this standard, and you'll be a good Islamic person, you'll be a good Jewish person, you'll be a good Buddhist, you'll be a good Shintoist. Follow the list of the commands, be obedient. But the nature of the gospel, the grace of the gospel is precisely the opposite. It recognizes the reality we are failures who have no hope in ourselves. And along comes Jesus who is incarnate. He comes into our world to be in our place to meet the demand that we fail to meet. So that when we read in verse 30, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We don't hear it as another command. We hear it as an expectation that with the incarnation of Jesus Christ, this one, this one who speaks in Matthew chapter 11, the burdens of life and the calling to be after Jesus Christ, to assume His nature and His character is not a heavy burden. Instead, it will seem light. Maybe that's not where you are this morning. Maybe when you hear me say that, you think to yourself, I'm not really sure what that means. Well, the calling to you is to discover it. Matthew explains it. The Gospels are full of it. There are a lot of people around you who would love to explain that truth. Maybe you're in the middle of it today. You say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I don't feel like this yoke is easy. The burden is light. I feel a lot of pressure and weight and difficulty. That's also the Spirit speaking to you, my friend, to show you that the love of Jesus is sufficient for where He has called you to. Your calling is not simply to do more and be different. It is to know and to press into the one who is so different than the religious leaders who are criticized at the beginning of Matthew 11. Or maybe some of us have come to the point where we could stand and say with confidence, I know after many years of living with Jesus Christ, the Reformation truth that with Jesus there is freedom is actually true. I feel it. I know it. The Lord has brought me to a place where that is true. Here's what I want to tell you. Wherever this passage meets you, it does not come with condemnation. It comes with a beckoning call. In fact, I am sure if Martin Luther were standing before you this morning, he would want me to say this. The legacy of the Reformation was not simply getting some doctrines right. We praise the Lord. That happened. That was necessary and essential for the future of the church. But the legacy of the Reformation is not simply in theological precision. The legacy of the Reformation is in this. And I leave you with it this morning. With Jesus, you can turn from the fear you sense to the freedom that you seek. Let's pray. Father, there are many things that come to mind after hearing a passage like this proclaimed Maybe it is our failures, maybe it is our frustrations, maybe it is that longing in our soul for something that we have not yet possessed. 
And so we call upon you as a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a triune God, that each one of you would be active in our hearts as we reflect on these truths. Father, we pray that you would show your power for those of us who doubt that it is possible that things could be different. Show us that power. Jesus, you have said that you're ruling from the right hand of the Father for the sake of your church. Lord, bring into our lives people and the right words and the passage of the Scripture that we need to know to experience that freedom. And Holy Spirit, this is your age. This is a time in which you are doing your great work. And I pray for each person who is here, in whatever stage of Christian growth, or even if they don't know Christ, Lord, you're able to do even more than we ask or imagine by your power in each one of our hearts. And we pray that the hope that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ would be a hope that translates into that freedom from fear that was so essential to Martin Luther and then began to characterize the Reformation as a whole. Father, make us children of that great legacy and particularly children of the Word as it reflects that legacy. For we ask you in Jesus' name, amen.